It's good to see everybody who's here today. Thank you very much for your presence, and I hope you feel welcome in this place. I don't know who's a guest. I do know a lot of the home team. But if you are a guest this morning, I'm sure that the home team wants you to feel very welcome here. And I know that this place is doing their best to accommodate everybody with every spectrum of uh, how we may feel about what's going on during this corona crisis. So for those who are outside in the foyer, I'm so glad that you're here and uh, glad that you're with us today. For those who are inside, the same. So I hope we all feel welcome and loved. Uh, it's good to see another congregation that is being flexible um, with how to respond. You know, sometimes in our home congregation in, in the Dallas area, we're trying to figure out how to be all things to all men with our home members. And so we're, we're currently meeting outside still uh, because our building is not yet done. So that's our excuse. We don't have a building to go inside with. But when that time comes, I know there's going to be a really long talk about whether or not we should go inside. And I know there will be people who are going to be on both sides of that talk about whether we should be inside and what we should be doing. And so I will be using you as a good example of how congregations should function and get along. And that is people from different opinions who are working together because of their love for the Lord is bigger than some of the issues that they might have in their heart. So... Uh, that's, that's my uh, part one of a preamble. I have several parts before we get into the Bible study this morning that I'd like to share with you. The second part of my preamble is this. Uh, rarely have we got the chance to worship inside since March. I think uh, two times have I been able to worship inside since March. And uh, this one was the one where we've actually heard singing bounce back at us. Right In other places that we've been to, the crowd was quite small or quite spread out, and so it was hard to hear. So what I've tried to tell our folks at home is that you know during this time when we worship outside, really it's the heavenly host that gets the benefit of our praise because we can't hear that four-part harmony. It's just going straight up to heaven, and everybody feels like we're singing a solo. And I know you all felt the same when you were outside probably too. But what a gleaning harvest it is. When we get to praise God and we get to hear that praise, right? And so I just want you all to appreciate, I know you do, and I'm speaking to people who appreciate it as much as I do, appreciate getting to feel the music, right? Feel the sound waves that are bouncing off of you and coming back to you. I only knew one of those four songs as far as that was in our books. I felt kind of like a generation that is watching the next generation do some of their dance moves that I've never seen before. And so some of these songs were a bit new for me, but nonetheless, so that's the end of the dance correlation, by the way, so don't, let's not take it too far. It was amazing how this music helped set the tone for what God has done for us. Right? So whether you might like this uh, genre of music or not, maybe you wish that it, it was something else, or songs that you know, and you know if you could know all four of them, that might be good. Whatever your thoughts are about it, man, the, the message in the song this morning about who Jesus is and what he's done, about how much we anticipate being with God in heaven, how worthy he is before, man, it's, what a praise it was. It was a feast. I'm so encouraged by the singing and by our prayer. Uh, here's my third preamble, and then maybe I'll get into the sermon after that. 
Um, I'm always, my heart always is, is partial for the young ones who want to sit on the front row. I know you're not young. You're, you're practically an adult over there. But, um, and I know that there are young ones that are not on the front row. So dare I leave you out? You know, I'm so sorry. I'm not, not meaning to leave you out. But it harkens back to when we were kids, right, Jeremy? When we would sit on the front row, you know, especially at 21st Street, when you're looking up, you know, straight up at the pulpit. That was our youth. But guys, you're 9, you're 10, 11, 12, 13. I'm going to say all those numbers because there we are. We're 11. And uh, I'll say what they told us. You're the future of the church. And the future's in good hands with guys like you. Okay, so whether you want to preach or whether you're going to be a school teacher or whether you're going to be a construction worker, the future of the church is in good hands with guys like you and with guys and girls who are sitting in the back that I'm not able to see as well as they are on the front row. It's so encouraging, so thank you. All right, let's talk about Matthew chapter 10, verse 26 through 33. Uh, if I were to confess, you know, that's in the title, if I were to confess this morning, it would be that as a preacher, it's really easy for me to preach topical sermons because topics are easy uh, for people to kind of latch on to and it's, it can be very applicable because of things going on in your life. But it's, it's hard at times to preach expository sermons where you're looking at a set of scripture and trying to expose or unlock what's going on. And I believe y'all are going through Romans right now, so you have a lot of experience with expository teaching. But I need to work on it. And so that's what I'd like to do today is teach an expository sermon, not because it's something in Matthew 10 just affected me and so here's my application, but rather I was reading through Matthew 10 and I thought, wow, how can I learn more about this and how can I share it with the church? So here I am on training wheels working through expository teaching with you today. So open up your Bible to Matthew 10. This is really where we're going to stay the whole time. I will be reading some other scriptures, but if you've uh, got an open Bible or you're taking notes, just know that this is primarily where we're going to be looking at today. When I was a kid, uh, we lived in a house for a time that had a second floor. It was this old farmhouse. It had mice running in the walls. The, the roof was tin, and so the rain was really loud. And it made the upstairs ominous. And foreboding. And I had an irrational fear of the dark. And so anytime that mom, you know, after the sun went down, said, you know, take this laundry up to your room. Or, you know, since it happened every night, it's bedtime. Anytime something happened where I had to go up in the dark, I knew that it was a death sentence. That there was whatever was in the dark. It, you could feel it. You could feel darkness, the way it throbbed and whatever was on the other side was just there, was going to get me every night for years at a time. Well, that brief connection uh, is meant to suggest that fear, although irrational and uh, unexplainable, is natural. And you may have never been afraid of the dark, but I imagine there was something or is something in your life that causes you or caused you in the past to be afraid. You know, in the New Testament, the Greek word for fear, phobio, which is you know, where we get phobia from, is used 140 times. And you want to know what the most common way that it's used? 
do not fear or don't be afraid. That's the most common usage of the word fear in the New Testament. And yes, there are a lot of times where it does describe their fear and they were afraid or you know, there was fear when. But what we're going to do is look at a certain text where Jesus numerously says, do not fear. So let's read a couple verses, shall we, as we begin in verse 26 and 27 in this section that I've entitled, Have No Fear, Preach the Kingdom. Matthew 26, or chapter 10, verse 26 rather says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. I'm a simple man, so I ask simple questions. And I would like to do that with you now. This is something I just like to do when I study the Bible. What's going on here? Who is speaking? Who is he speaking to? What are they not supposed to fear? What, what could they potentially fear? These are questions that are just in my mind as I read this verse. And so I'd like to spend a minute maybe fleshing it out. Because when we study the Bible, that's the best way to appreciate what's going on in a place is to look at its context. Matthew 10 is an exciting time in the ministry of Jesus. You have to remember that Matthew, at least I have to remember, Matthew is not written chronologically, but it's written in logical order. So he kind of jumps around chronologically. And we're actually kind of later in Jesus' ministry, even though it's earlier in the book. Okay? So this is one of Jesus' limited commissions, where he's going to send his apostles out and have them go to the lambs of Israel, as he says. So in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 and 6, he tells them, go out to the lost sheep of Israel. In verse 7, he has a very specific theme that they're going to preach to everyone, and that is... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's going to be on the gospel meeting banner at the synagogue whenever they roll into town. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is a message that the Jewish people want to hear. This is the number one message. This is their John 3.16 verse, so to speak. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's an exciting time. And in addition to that, Jesus tells them in verse 8 that they're going to heal the sick and they're going to cleanse the lepers. They're going to raise the dead. They're going to cast out demons. And so these guys are pumped. They have the truth. They have Jesus' message. They've got the truth, just like we do. Not only do they have the truth, but they have these special abilities. So they are excited. This is what we've been waiting for. And this is what his ministry is going to be about. We're going to go out and preach. And the whole nation is going to rally to Jesus' side. And then he's going to take over Jerusalem. And then we're going to take over the world. And in this moment where there's this exciting uh, response of the disciples, Jesus tries to temper that because he knows what I'm going to call the, the reality of reaction. Jesus knows the way that a lot of people are going to respond to the truth. And so those who, I hate saying naive, but I guess the disciples are a little naive about the gospel message. They're expecting that everybody's just going to say, great. And Jesus will now spend some time in Matthew 10 explaining, okay, here's what you're going to say, and here's what they're going to respond with. In verse 16, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents 
and harmless as doves. Okay, so now I'm going to ask a question again. It's what I'm thinking as I study the Bible. Why do they need to be as wise as serpents? What, what sort of wisdom? They have the truth. Why do they need to worry about their, the, the wisdom? They, they've got the message. They've got the gifts. Well, Jesus explains. In verse 17 through 22, he lists four precautions about the reality of reaction. He said, be ready because these four things are likely to happen. 17, but beware, be, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Verse 18, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. Verse 21, now brother will deliver brother to death and father as child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. So let's keep this in its context for the moment because it's really easy for me to jump into that and say, have you seen what's going on in our country today? That's not where we are yet. We'll make application there, but that's not Jesus' intention. He's talking to 12 guys who are about to go out to Israel. So contextually, in this limited commission, they're going to go out, they're going to put the banner up on the synagogue that says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're going to heal the sick. They're going to raise the dead. The lepers are going to be cleansed. They're going to tell people believe in Jesus. And then people are going to start beating them. And that's going to seem so odd to the disciples. I, I literally just raised him from the dead and you're telling on me? It doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense to our eyes. Here's you know, a small application. Does it make sense to you whenever you tell someone Jesus loves you? And their response is, well, I hate you. That doesn't make sense to me. When we preach the gospel, there will be those who don't want to hear it. And the reaction may be negative and it may be forceful. So let's jump back in and read verse 26 and 27 one more time. We're getting back to them and what he was telling them. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So I'm asking those questions, and the question is, who are the disciples not to fear? And the answer is, those whom they preach to. Apparently, Jesus understood that they would generally start to become afraid of their neighbors, their former friends, their family. I mean, he warns them that father is going to turn on child, children will turn on parent. In our culture, we may not appreciate that as much. I feel like uh, we got a small taste of it when we lived in Cambodia. Uh, in Eastern Asian cultures, family is king in ways that it's not here. We, we think that we are close with our family, but listen, it's a whole nother world in some parts of the globe. And it really is when you confess Christ, you are, you are rejecting your family. And your family in turn rejects you. They don't want you. You need to get out. You need to go find a new place to live. We don't want anything to do with you. Don't come home. That happens today in the 21st century. And that's what Jesus is talking about because it was happening in the 1st century. In fact, a lot of scholars suggest that in Jewish families, to abandon the faith, this wasn't like somebody who uh, 
goes from a denomination and joins the Lord's church and the family gets upset at him and then they have him over for Thanksgiving. In the Jewish culture at that time, they, they would hold a funeral for that person because that person was dead to them. That's what Christians were coming into. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, if you want to, let's change gears for a moment, G, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain the superiority of Christ to a group of Jewish Christians who are wondering, is this really worth it? Because I have nothing at home anymore. And now the Romans are coming after us. And here we are, this little group. Is it really worth it? Let's jump back into Matthew chapter 10. Why are, are the apostles not to fear their neighbors and their family? Because, not because of uh, what these people can do and how it's not going to be that bad. They're not supposed to fear because fear cripples the gospel. That's the reason. We're not to fear because fear can irrationally cripple the gospel's effect in your life and on the lives of others. In the same way that fear can irrationally cripple an eight-year-old from taking his pile of laundry upstairs. <laughs> or wanting to go to bed. Right? Hiding in the closet somewhere. Just like, please don't make me go upstairs. Why? Because it makes us reevaluate what's important. For me, I would rather stay on the front porch at all costs than go upstairs. And when fear is in the heart of a Christian... Of what people will do. How people will respond. Will they like me? Suddenly we are irrationally looking inwards and saying, Well, maybe I'm not good enough to share the gospel. Maybe I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough scripture. I, I'm, I'm worried about some of what they're going to say. Maybe they're going to convince me and I'm wrong. We're going to start irrationally looking at them and saying, They're not going to listen. You haven't talked to them yet, but you've already assumed. They're not going to hear me. They don't want to hear me. They're not worth talking to. That's what happens when fear takes hold. It cripples our lives. But Jesus says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you've heard whispered, proclaim it to the house, on the housetops. And his encouragement to them is this, basically. In light of the coming persecution, here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak it anyway. He doesn't give them way out. He doesn't say, here's what you're going to do when you preach and they start raising fists and you build side doors on your church so you can run out real quick. That's not his escape plan. His escape plan is whatever you've heard, you speak it in the daylight and on the rooftops. And so the question for us, if we're going to apply it, is what do we do in the face of opposition? And I would say it really is as simple as what we hear in the dark, we preach in the light. And what we hear in a whisper, we say it on the rooftop. May we always be engaged in a very public ministry, public preaching, online ministry, newspaper, radio, whatever you want to call it. May we be finding ways to reach out to people. May you be finding ways to talk to people. Don't give up on that. Okay. Uh, let's see. I wanted to focus on this point. What, what are we proclaiming from the rooftops? What are we proclaiming from the rooftops? It's easy for me, maybe it is for you too, to look at other groups who have 10,000 followers and uh, you know, their parking lot is like a stadium. 
maybe they've got somebody who is really eloquent and there's this perceived credibility that they've, they've got everything. So what do we have? What do I have that is helpful? Well, Jesus actually answered that previously in Matthew 10, verse 7. This is what he told them back when, when they were really pumped. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what we have. That's what we preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what we observe in the New Testament is before Jesus died, that was their theme. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then after Jesus died and was buried and resurrected, you look in Acts chapter 8, 14, 19, 20, 28, a lot of places. The message changes to the kingdom of heaven is now. And the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus would even clarify that in Luke 17, verse 20. He says, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here, see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And so what, what we proclaim from, from the rooftops is this. The kingdom of heaven is here. Now we have to quantify what that means. So if you're taking notes, write down Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in which we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Do you want to know a mindset that is common among our people? I don't have time to share the gospel because I'm too busy cleaning up after what people are doing who don't have the truth. Right? So we're too busy sweeping up... uh, We've got to clarify about baptism, or we've got to clarify about instrumental music, or you know, we've got to clarify about communion. And so we never get the chance to proclaim from the rooftops because we're too busy sweeping out the house. May we never stop. Okay, don't take away from this message that stop doing that. That's not my intention. We must keep the house clean in this example. However, Brother and sister, I want to encourage you to shout it from the rooftops that you are in the kingdom. Otherwise, why would I take of one bread and one cup if Jesus didn't deliver me from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom? What's the point of me being dipped in water if I don't appreciate that I was lost? I, who am like a, I think, fourth generation Christian. I've known the church my whole life. There was a point when I realized what was wrong, that it wasn't me sinning against my parents or disobeying mom and dad, but I'm laying in bed as an 11 and a half year old at 12.30 in the morning realizing I have an issue. And if I don't get baptized tonight, I'm going to hell. I need God's forgiveness. Knocking on my parents' door, please, please. I can't wait till the morning. I, we have to go now. So whether you're in this audience and you've lived what many might call riotous living, where you've spent years living in the world and you recognize what it means to be in the kingdom of darkness and then be delivered into the kingdom of the Son of His love, or whether you were raised in the church but suddenly you recognize that sin affected you just as much as it affected anybody else. Every single person who is at a level of understanding to know the gospel, to have rejected it at one point, and then to have accepted it, recognized that you've been delivered into the kingdom of his love. That's what we're shouting from the rooftops. And I know our, our church culture, per se, we don't really do testimony. 
where you know somebody gets up and talks about this is how Jesus changed my life. We we you know we kind of move away from that because we want the glory to be going to God, not to the person standing up front telling you how great they are because uh, of what Jesus did. But don't let that stop you when you are interacting with somebody at the coffee pot at work or whatever from telling them what Jesus did for you. How is good news good if we don't tell people what he did? That's what I'm trying to say. If the only coffee pot conversation at work or if you're at school, if the only conversations are you rejecting somebody's gospel claims with truth so that you can clean up their mess, you've never expressed that you're in the kingdom and what the kingdom is. Jesus delivered me out of darkness and because I'm in the kingdom of his light, that's why I don't cuss. You know, Jesus delivered me from darkness and that's why I dress the way I do. This is how I want these conversations to be framed. That's what I'm trying to get here is that I don't dress this way or I don't speak this way or sisters, I don't let my hair grow long. I don't do all of those things just so I can look at you and say I'm better than you. I do it because Jesus delivered me from darkness and brought me into his kingdom. And how else can I live but the way that he's asked me to live? That's what I want to do. Because it's Jesus' way. This is part of our proclamation. It's the most powerful weapon in our arsenal. I do this because Jesus did this. Okay. You might be wondering, how in the world are we going to get through this if that was the first point? The answer is, because at home, I only get to preach 15 minutes outside. And so I relish the opportunity to be in the air conditioning, and you can't make me stop. (laughs) I'm just kidding not really Uh, verse 28 through 31 please we move into our second point do not fear most do fear one so Jesus will now in this pep talk that he's giving his 12 disciples pause because it would be really easy for these guys remember again they haven't faced it yet so they're still pumped up and he's telling them not to fear and so they're kind of like We got this. Don't worry. So in their ignorant arrogance, he's reminding them that there is one you should fear. So keep that in mind as you don't fear others. Let's read it together. Verse 28 through 31. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Do not fear, rather fear, fear not. All in this little paragraph. So that makes me ask questions. Who are they not to fear and why not? Who are they to fear and why And then why are they told to fear and then told fear not again? (laughs) Well, we've already talked about the first one, so I can sum it up fairly quickly. They are not to fear the reality of reaction. They're not to fear how people respond to their message. But this time he just goes to the most extreme. And he asks the question, 
what, what if somebody did the most horrible thing when you share the gospel with them? What if they pulled out a sword and just stuck you right in the heart? Or in our, our day, what if somebody just pulled out a gun and shot you in the face? I don't think that's happened to anybody here. And I don't say that facetiously. Maybe you've had something happen to you violently. I've never experienced a violent reaction. So I've not experienced this most extreme. But we've all probably, in one way or another, been uncomfortable. Maybe people have called us names. I've been called a false teacher. I've been called an idiot. I've been called a lot of things on the spectrum. But that's really it. I've been called names. Right? So he goes to the most extreme and says, What if somebody killed you when you said the kingdom of heaven is at hand? And then he gives a scenario. It's a a would you rather. Would you rather lose a few years of this life to gain an eternity of reward? Or would you rather save a few years of this life and not face that violent end, but then lose that eternity? It's one of those rhetorical type questions with really only one answer, one logical answer. And that is, of course, it's worth giving up now for what's going on in eternity. Now, I will... uh, tell you this only because I remember as a kid feeling that I shouldn't fear ever and then in every phase of life when I continue to be afraid I I sometimes wonder if I'm really that strong of a Christian so I would just like to share this for anybody else out there who may be similar when Jesus is talking about not fearing he's talking about a crippling fear that causes you to not do what you're supposed to do and that's different than having a nervous reaction or response, but doing what you're supposed to do anyway. 35 years old, and every time I preach, I still get nervous before I get in the pulpit. Kind of shake. Sometimes I try to hold Marissa's hand, but so cold she scorns me. I'm just kidding. She does not scorn me. Right? I wish I could get over that sense of nervousness. I can't. When someone says, oh, Jonathan, there's a visitor in the back. Will you go talk to this strange person? I have a little knot in my stomach because even though I may be a person that enjoys, I'm an extrovert, that scenario is not natural for me. The, the website and stuff that I operate, YouTube comment section is the place where people's souls go to die, I feel like sometimes. <laughs> because I get some of the most bewildering, mean comments on a little whiteboard video that I'll write, you know. It just doesn't seem worth it. And so I've yet to experience a part in my life where I have this fire, to, and I'm so zealous that night inside I'm wondering, but what are they going to think about me? Or what are they going to do to me? I've yet to experience that. And if you have that ability, I'd love to talk to you so that I can learn how to do it. But here's what we, I guess, the, the encouragement I want to provide. And that is, there's a difference between having that internal conflict and then it consumes you and you don't do anything versus having that and then going and doing it anyway. So do it. That's the motivation, is be nervous and do it anyway. Now, we are to fear someone. We know it's not to fear man or woman. So who do we fear? Who has the authority to destroy both body and soul in hell? Is it the devil? 
Sounds like the devil, doesn't it? Somebody who can destroy the body and soul? It's not. We are not to fear the devil. Did you know in the New Testament, the phrase uh, fear the devil is not there? We're never told to fear the devil. We're told to resist the devil. We're told to flee. We're told to defy the devil. Ephesians 6, 11, James 4, 7 are a couple verses, examples. But don't give in to the Hollywood trope that the devil and God are like yin and yang, complete good, complete evil, and they are at odds and they're these perfect counterparts to each other. The devil is a created being who is inferior to God. He is not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know your thoughts. The devil works off observation. So don't overestimate him that he is able to manipulate you and has the authority to destroy your body and soul in hell. And that when you, uh, rather when one goes to hell, that the devil's going to somehow enjoy it. That he's going to clock in for work so that he can uh, torment this person and clock out like it's his job. When the devil goes to hell in Revelation chapter 20, when he's cast out, that's his punishment. Because he's not God's equal. He's going to get his just reward. Now, don't underestimate the devil because he's had thousands of years to observe human behavior and knows how to manipulate and tempt. But the point of this Bible study is that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, we are to fear God. That's the mindset that a Christian should have. I'm not going to fear uh, men. I'm not going to fear the devil, but I am going to fear God. God is the righteous judge who has the authority to kill the body and kill the soul. Now, it's a whole other conversation, but this is one of those points that we need to consider and use when atheists and skeptics talk about how could a good God destroy people in the Old Testament. And I know they don't like this very much, but in the scriptures, one of the reasons is because God has authority over body and soul. So God has authority to take what he creates for another day. We'll go down that road. In this study, we'll say this. What sort of fear do we have of God? Fear for God is defined as a sense of awe, reverence, and dread. The word awesome, which I used to use all the time. I don't use it hardly anymore. I had somebody convict me on it. Do you know what's awesome? Not pizza. Not some stunt that you did on your bike. God is awesome. Why? Because awesome means full of awe, which means full of dread, which means full of fear. So I'm not going to be a stickler if you say awesome around me. I will not withdraw fellowship from you. But giving proper respect to what God is, I recognize that God has the authority to destroy both body and soul. He's like the sun. I think I may have said this here several years ago. So if you do remember, then just pretend like you haven't heard it before. But uh, when we look at the sun and the, the solar system, we recognize that there's nothing else like it, right? There's planets, there's uh, moons and space dust and everything else. But there's really just one source of energy in our solar system. And it's gravitational forces what's causing everything else to do what it does. Its energy source is what gives us life and light and everything, and so we value what it provides. But we respect it enough to not send an astronaut to the sun. Why? We fear what would happen to that astronaut, right? With good reason. 
None of us therefore conclude, oh, the sun is awful because it has this power. And so I reject the sun and I'm going to dig down into the earth and never be around it. None of us do that because we balance the awful power that it has with the light, the heat, the life that it provides. And the same is with God. I recognize and dread God's power. In the same way that if if God came into this assembly, our reaction would be like Moses, like Isaiah, like Elijah, anyone who was in his presence that immediately, like Isaiah in chapter 6 said, basically, kill me now. I have seen holiness and I don't deserve to live. There's a dread to that. But that's not what Jesus is meaning in Matthew chapter 10. So here we are. Let's go back into this text. Why did Jesus say to fear him? Because in the context, he's saying, don't fear others. Respect that God is the one that you're supposed to fear. But here's these two examples, sparrows and hare. God knows when every sparrow falls. God is able to count every hair on your head. Insert obligatory, bald joke. His point is this. At the end of verse 31, fear not. Therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So don't fear, rather fear, fear not. Don't fear them, the, the, re, the reaction, don't worry about their reaction. Rather fear, have a sense of awe and dread about who God is and he's holy and what he can do. In conclusion, don't fear. Why do we not fear? Because we're more valuable than sparrows. And I'd like to mention this. I've taken up probably more than my time. I still got this last one to get to. It's the title of the sermon. I can't just skip it. But uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 through 19, the Bible says, By this love has perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. I know that if you weren't listening carefully, can be kind of a confusing collection of fears and loves. But here's the point in connection with Matthew 10. Our fear of God is not equivalent with our fear of hell. Why? Because we fear not. We're in the kingdom. And what needs to be taught on as much as holy living, obedient faith, is assurance, confidence. That is a biblical word in 1 John 4, 17. We have confidence on the day of judgment. A Christian can be confident when Jesus returns. You know, when Jesus comes back, there will be a sense of awe in the sky. If we're alive when that happens, there will be a sense of awe as we're called up in the clouds. But on judgment, there should be confidence for you and me where we're not going, ooh, how's it going to go whenever I get to stand before the throne? I'm just not sure. I hope, I hope, I think, I think, I'm not sure. There's confidence. Hebrews talks about how we're supposed to boldly come before the throne. Do not associate confidence with arrogance. Or a license to sin. As we'll talk about in a moment, the license to sin only leads to destruction. So, we have a reverent fear of God and a healthy dose of reality. 
about the way that people respond to the gospel based on the confidence that we have of being in the kingdom. So here we are in the conclusion of being fear, fearless confessors. Contextually, Jesus is now speaking to you and me. Up until this point, he's talked to 12 guys about their limited commission. But he says in verse 32, look at it with me, please. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who's in heaven. All right. This sermon, I hope so far you've not thought it was a preacher sermon. Sometimes I and others can be guilty of that, where preachers are preaching to preachers about preaching. Right? So we're going to go share the gospel, preachers. Meanwhile, you may not be a preacher. And so you think, this isn't for me, because I'm not a preacher. And so what I want to do right now is a very intense word study in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Maybe the most intense you have ever known. Look at Matthew 10, verse 32, the second word. In the version that I'm using, it says, everyone. So everyone who acknowledges me before men. So let's break this word down. Who does everyone mean? Everyone. Does that include preachers? Yes. Does that exclude anyone? No. So who does that include? Everyone. Moms, does that include you? Yes. Dads, yes. Retirees, yes. Teenagers, yes. I could go through a, a list of everyone. I could point at all of you if I had the time. And you, yes. And you, yes. You are included in that verse. So insert your name right there. So insert name. Who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. This application is for you. He was talking to 12. He gives them the parameters of his commission. He's explaining what they're going to do. He gives them the cautions of what's going to happen to them. And then now he's moving on to his people in the kingdom. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. The word acknowledge means to speak the same thing. And many suggest that it, it literally means a verbal confession. And so you have the duty, the responsibility to verbally confess Christ. So we can break that down by asking two questions. How can we confess Christ? And how... Can we deny him? And we'll talk about three ways and four ways that we can confess and deny Christ. So let's go through them as quickly as we can. The first way is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You could write down Matthew 16, verse 16 through 18. Acts chapter 8, verse uh, 35 through 37. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. And this is why when somebody wants to get baptized, we say, what do you believe? So for those of you who are younger and you haven't been baptized yet, but you're thinking about it, this isn't some tradition where we, we, we want to do it because that's just the way we do it here. No, 
We want to give you an opportunity the way that Jesus gives us opportunity to confess his name before men. So acknowledge Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In our culture, that doesn't sound as dangerous as maybe it was back then, but let me tell you, that's a dangerous confession. You are dangerously saying that Jesus is the Son of God and there's no one else like him. There's power in that. Not only do we acknowledge uh, Jesus as our Lord and Son of God, but there is a lifestyle confession. And uh, you can look at scriptures like 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Other scriptures uh, as well, but that scripture specifically talks about how wives, without saying a word, are able to win their husbands to Christ with the conduct of their character. And so that is a valuable form of confession. In fact, that's one that I frequently use, Matthew chapter 10, to talk about. The confession of a life. The way that you speak, the way you dress, the way you act, the way you treat. But, as much as this is important, a lifestyle confession is not an excuse to never verbally confess Christ. And that's the third one, is the verbal confession. Because this verbal confession in Matthew chapter 10, who are they confessing to? When we acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God, traditionally, we're among Christians. We're among the faithful. We don't take our baptistry and wheel it out downtown on the lunch break so that the heathens can watch us baptize someone. Maybe we should. <laughs> but the verbal confession in Matthew chapter 10 is saying, those who confess me, who verbally acknowledge me in my work, who speak the same as me before the world, are the ones I will acknowledge in heaven. And those who deny, that is, don't verbally acknowledge and talk about me before the world, I will deny them as well. And here's the point that I'm trying to make. Those who you have relationship with, your lifestyle will have the most impact on. That's why Peter said a husband-wife. But what if your relationship with somebody, I know I keep using the coffee pot, but what if your relationship with them is that five minutes at the coffee pot at work? It's that class that you have for 45 minutes out of the day at school, right? A lifestyle confession never gets around to baptism because they're just seeing that you don't cuss or that you dress a certain way. Instead, verbal confession is you explaining who Jesus is and what he's done for you and how he delivered you out of darkness and into the kingdom of the son of his love. That's the verbal confession. And, and your life can't confess that to a stranger who doesn't know your life. Okay. How do we deny Jesus? We deny Jesus in ignorance. As Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through uh, probably 32, but I'm just going to put 28 up there. In this scripture, people who never know God, even though they see his evidence, they deny his good works. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, we can, uh, Christians specifically, whenever we are willfully disobedient, there remains nothing for us but judgment. At that point, because we are denying Jesus when we don't live his way. Uh, when we do not acknowledge brethren. 
is another way that we deny Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 44 and 45. Uh, that scripture and other scriptures in the New Testament mentioned that the things that you do for your brethren is how Jesus says it's what you did to him. And so if you deny your brethren some of these good blessings, then you are denying it to Jesus. And then in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, when we do not verbally preach or confess Jesus' name in the face of persecution. So if somebody were to say, uh, you need to deny Jesus or I'm going to kill you, God forbid that ever happened to us. But if that ever did happen to us and we denied Jesus, uh, I pray that there would be time for you to repent of that because in Revelation 2 and 3 it talks about how uh, when that opportunity comes, may we be bold to stand for what is right and the truth. That's our Bible study this morning from Matthew chapter 10, verse uh, 28 through 33. And I'm very thankful to have this time to lead it with you. Thank you for your kind attention. And we never want to end this part of the service without a gospel invitation. And so using this as the springboard, I'd like to ask you about the kingdom of darkness. Are you living in the kingdom of darkness? If somebody here has not obeyed the gospel, the automatic answer is yes. But the good news is good news because Jesus saves even you. And so you can come hearing, believing, repenting, confessing that he is the son of God and be baptized for the remission of sins. And you are delivered into the kingdom of the son of his love. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.